Ultrasound Gel Podcast. Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Ultrasound Gel Podcast. Mike Pratt's here and today we have another special treat. I'm joined by my good friend and pediatric EM POCUS expert, Delia Gold. Thanks for the shout out. Good to have you here. And you know what that means. We're talking about a pediatric article today. So the title of this article is Impact of Transcervical Ultrasound for the Diagnosis of Pediatric Peritonsillar Abscesses on Emergency Department Performance Measures. This was published in the Journal of Ultrasound and Medicine 2019. Now this is a really cool study and the reason that I was interested in this is that you don't see too much published on doing ultrasound for peritonsillar abscesses except for the occasional case report. The first way they described finding a peritonsillar abscess on ultrasound was by using an endoluminal probe or endocavitary probe and actually just placing it right on the peritonsillar space intraorally. And aside from being a little bit uncomfortable for the patient and painful, this also has the downside of taking away a lot of the intraoral space for visualization or even procedures in a patient who sometimes already has an element of trismus due to their pathology. So, as it has been uncovered, a transcervical, or basically looking through the neck and the submandibular region, may be an easier way to visualize this and less invasive and more comfortable while still getting all the information that you need. So this study took a look at switching from kind of a CT first approach to peritonsillar abscesses to an ultrasound first approach, and they looked at patient-centered outcomes. They actually looked at something the patient will care about, their length of stay. So I thought that was a great idea. There are some caveats that after we dug into this article, we found out. Number one, this doesn't really seem to be a point-of-care study. This was actually radiology-performed studies, but I think that the information presented here can be extrapolated and at least gives us a diving board to know if doing this in a point-of-care fashion would be valuable. And secondly, their study design, as we'll get into, is not the most robust, but I think there's still some information we can take from this. So to start, Delia, can you give me a little bit of an overview? What happens if you have a kid who comes into your emergency department and you're worried about a peritonsillar abscess? We see this complaint a lot. Uh, I work in a very busy level one uh, pediatric center and we get a lot of referrals, both from the urgent cares around town um, as well as primary care offices and just people coming from home. For me and for the culture at my institution, actually, a peritonsillar abscess is a clinical diagnosis. So imaging is very, very rarely done at all. When I started reading this paper, I was questioning the need for these imaging protocols because we usually make heavy use of clinical gestalt as well as our ENT specialists because I think the difference in pediatrics, obviously, and adult medicine is we have to take into account um, the patient's ability to cooperate with the actual procedure. And if we're worried that they're not going to cooperate, which I think would be most children under the age of 14, and it's not a, a benign, there's there's high risk aspects to it, obviously, because of the, the uh, anatomy. 
So for those reasons, we tend to use clinical gestalt to decide if we think they can make it with antibiotics only or if they need an actual drainage. And if a drainage is indicated, the ENT surgeon will actually come in and see them. With that said, clearly I have a very uh, specific system where I have access to consultants who are very willing to come in. And I think the idea always is useful for POCUS is are you alone on an island where you don't have all the tools you need? Can you use an ultrasound to help you? Great points. So it sounds like your practice and perhaps uh, the practice that we've both kind of witnessed is a little bit different from the population that was studied here in that it seems their initial protocol was to get CTs kind of often on these patients to confirm the diagnosis of a peritonsillar abscess. Well, let's jump into it at this point. So Delia, what questions were they asking with this study? What were they hoping to find out? So on review of the article, their primary question was, does the adoption of transcervical ultrasound as the initial imaging choice in the suspected peritonsillar abscess significantly reduce the length of stay for the patient as opposed to using CT first? A secondary question that they wanted to look into was if the use of the transcervical ultrasound as a first imaging study, first line imaging study in patients with suspected PTAs associated with a significant reduction in the estimated radiation doses and costs. I think we can agree it's going to have automatically reduced radiation, but any kind of cost analysis is always very interesting, especially in pediatrics where CTs are used much more infrequently. And this is similar to a lot of other studies looking at an ultrasound first approach. So it's not that they're saying you can't do CTs anymore, but the idea is, hey, if we do the ultrasound before, sometimes we get enough information that we don't need to do additional studies at that point. The way they tackled this question was they actually did a pre and post study. So it was all retrospective. They had a cohort of patients that presented to the emergency department with suspected peritonsillar abscesses. And then the pre-group was their traditional diagnostic, which seemed to go to CT pretty quickly if they needed a diagnostic test. And then afterwards, they actually did a great job of collaborating both emergency medicine, ENT, radiology. They made a protocol and implemented it. And the main change was that now, if you're worried about a peritonsillar abscess, you get an ultrasound first. And again, this is not a point of care ultrasound. This is you order an ultrasound. It's done by a stenographer and interpreted by a radiologist. So their main question was, now that we have this new protocol implemented, and they had it for a couple years, they wanted to see what is the length of stay for these patients in the emergency department. And then secondarily, can we calculate the costs and the radiation that these patients are receiving? So Delia, can you tell us a little bit about doing this ultrasound? I bet a lot of people haven't ever done a transcervical ultrasound for a peritonsillar abscess. Yeah, so <clears throat> when you're trying to do this scan with um, the transcervical approach, you need a linear transducer that will give you uh, heightened definition and detail because there's obviously a lot of anatomy you're trying to suss out in that area. You want to try to use the submandibular gland as possible as an acoustic window with the beam of the ultrasound angled cephalad and posteriorly to get access to where your high risk area is. You would scan in both the transverse and sagittal plane as you would do with any infection, potential infection. 
with um and the PTA, if it's present, would appear as an anechoic or a hypochoic, irregularly marginated area adjacent to the pharyngeal tonsil. Um, for this study, they used various uh, linear high-frequency probes. And when you, if you review the article yourself, you'll see very high-quality, pristine images that um, show normal and abnormal. And luckily for us, we can actually do that in real time. Dr. Pratt's, because as I recommend to all my trainees, if you're worried about an abnormal skin or soft tissue finding, make sure you scan the other side. It'll give you really good uh, information of what's normal on the unaffected side, as opposed to what you're looking at on the affected side. I have done this uh, a number of times in adults, and sometimes it's a little bit easier for us if we use a curvilinear probe. You don't get that resolution, but that allows you to get that span that you need so you can see the peritonsillar region and the adjacent vasculature, because I think a lot of times when we're draining these, we want to make sure we know where the carotid artery is, because that's something we generally try to avoid puncturing. Always a good plan. A couple other tips I find when I do this, I like to flip the image upside down. So you know how on your soft keys you can rotate that image and I put it so that the beam is actually going from bottom of the screen to top of the screen at this point because it makes a little more sense in my head anatomically trying to interpret where those structures are, especially if you're going to do a guided peritonsillar drainage procedure so you can actually see your needle through there which can be very valuable. And just like Dr. Gold said, comparing both sides, really helpful to know if there's something abnormal, especially if you haven't done too many of these. So Delia, what did they end up finding? Okay, so in the study period, they had 387 eligible patients that 101 were evaluated with CT first, and 286 were evaluated with the, evaluated with the transcervical ultrasound. None of the patients who had ultrasound scans required a subsequent CT scan, which is awesome. I love saving the radiation. I will say again, though, if you don't usually go to CT, that is not an unexpected finding. Similar rates of CTs and ultrasound studies had positive results, so we know that the patient populations were similar with regards to positive findings. The length of stay, however, in the CT group was 426 minutes, with about plus minus 171 minutes versus a length of stay in the ultrasound group that was 347 minutes. The absolute difference was 79 minutes with an appropriate confidence interval. When you break down that those groups, the difference in time was really only statistically significant in those with negative results. So the CT group in a negative patient had a length of stay that was 115 minutes longer than the ultrasound group, so over an hour extra. And that doesn't surprise me because in order to get this CT, <clears throat> you would need IV access, which takes time. You have kids that don't love getting stuck. So that doesn't surprise me that it would extend your time. Um, and then patients, as opposed to the patients who had positive results, where the difference was only 12 minutes and not statistically significant, which again makes sense because once you get a positive result, you're going you're gonna to escalate the patient. You're going to start calling ENT, decide if they need IV antibiotics that need to be ordered from pharmacy, decide what labs you need, and maybe even um, admit them to the hospital. Really good points about that. So their primary outcome, you save about 80 minutes length of stay, but it turns out that that is driven by this group that had negative scans. Makes sense. The ultrasound helps them get the answer and be able to leave 
shortening their length of stay. Whereas if they do have pathology, that starts a whole new cascade of events which it may wash out ultimately. So another interesting finding is that they, when they checked on the cost, CTs cost the patient close to $1,200, whereas ultrasound was close to $500. So between $600 and $700 difference there. And of course, as expected, there was much less radiation to the patient in the ultrasound group. Actually, no radiation. That's right. <laughs> I was interested to find that they actually increased the number of studies once they switched to this ultrasound protocol. So they increased an additional four and a half studies per month. And I think, Deli, do you have any ideas why that would be once you do an ultrasound first protocol, you start doing more studies than you did previously? I think that all doctors and pediatric doctors in particular love free free information that doesn't radiate, cause a needle stick, or need sedation. So I, those are our main problems in pediatrics with CTs with IV contrast or prolonged MRIs that have, you know, no radiation, but I need to put the kid down for it. I shouldn't say put down. <laughs> um, we have to sedate the child for Gotta it. Gotta put them down. <laughs> um, an ultrasound is such an attractive option. And that's also part of why in pediatrics, ultrasound, point of care ultrasound has been slowly adopted because our radiologists love using ultrasound. It is a great modality, it's repeatable, and it doesn't require painful IV sticks or sedation. So I think once the option is given to any pediatric doctor to take ultrasound first, they're, they're going to take it and they're going to use it frequently, which we saw. Now to get into some of the limitations here, I would have really liked to see a comparison of the kind of how sick the patients were. They got CT versus the ones that got ultrasound because at least as far as we know, it's a little bit odd for all of these patients to be getting CTs. So maybe it's just a subset and maybe it's the sicker patients or the patients where it's unclear if they have a peritonsillar abscess that were getting the CTs initially. And maybe that group is a little different from people that you are willing to order an, just a transcervical ultrasound on. So it would have been nice to compare those groups to see if there was any biases that could be uh, account for some of these differences in length of stay. Additionally, we have to bring up the fact that this was not a prospectively collected data set, nor were they randomized to one arm or the other. This was a pre and post study. And by the nature of this, there are a lot of other confounders that can creep in and change these variables, even length of stay that they were measuring. So keep that in your mind. This will probably need to be verified to confirm these findings. Some other interesting limitations is when you look at the number of patients that were enrolled, it was in the 300s, and they say that 34 patients actually received imaging studies but were not included due to lack of length of stay information. And that ends up being about 8.8% of the total patient population. So in theory, that could have maybe affected their outcomes, although un you know we don't know in advance. Additionally, I wish in in my heart as a point of care ultrasound person that these had been done point of care, not by radiology. But the reality is with such limited information, it's really great to establish that this modality can be used safely 
if you are uncomfortable with just a clinical diagnosis, that you don't need to go to CT, that a radiology department or a point of care uh, ultrasound enthusiast can do a bedside <clears throat> ultrasound to help make your clinical determination of what you want to do with the patient. I would almost liken it to the early pediatric appendicitis papers where we need to prove first that you can use ultrasound to make the diagnosis by the experts, which would in, in this case be the radiology uh, suite. And then we can maybe go to a, pro, a next study that would hopefully be prospective where you look at a, a PEM physician or a pediatric trained uh, doctor in the ER doing the bedside ultrasound and then making their decision on that and seeing if uh, it works to keep the patient safe. It would have been nice to get length of stay information on everybody with a suspected peritonsillar abscess, not just those that got imaging. So if you're implementing this protocol, what if there's people, like you were saying before, Delia, that you realize, well, the the diagnosis is obvious. They obviously have it or they obviously don't. We don't need to get imaging because that might also dilute out some of these changes in length of stay. So let me summarize the study at this point. This was a retrospective pre and post design of 387 pediatric patients at a single center. They compared CTs done in the before group to ultrasounds done after the implementation of a protocol for peritonsillar abscess imaging. Sonographer performed and radiology interpreted ultrasounds were done and they found a decreased length of stay by 79 minutes. There was a potential for cost savings and of course radiation savings. So Delia hit us with the take home points for this article. So the take home points are that an ultrasound first imaging approach to pediatric peritonsillar abscess has the potential to decrease the length of stay, although this applies primarily to the patients with positive findings. And this particular study has too much risk for confounding to draw definitive conclusions. Additionally, if you are practicing in an environment like I do, where clinical diagnosis is your go-to standard for PTA, this paper might not be as useful for you. Additionally, transcervical ultrasound is feasible in this kind of population and did not result in either returned visits, increased return visits, or a need for a follow-up CT, which is always a wonderful thing. Well, we thank the authors for performing this interesting and informative work, and we thank you for continuing to listen to our podcast. If you want to hear more, go to ultrasoundjail.org. You can check us out on Facebook or talk to us on Twitter. And until then, we'll talk to you later. More. More. Gel. More. Pressure. More. Gel. More. Ultrasound gel. 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 Gel